0: So um, what I, I want to do is I want to, we're, we're closing up our last section today. So as I said, after each section, we're going to have a quiz. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the quiz. It'll be online, and it'll be mostly multiple choice. You'll have 24 hours to complete it, starting Thursday of this week until Friday of this week. So you don't have to think about it by the time you go uh, on your little break. So, but it'll basically be from the readings and some from the class. It should not be that difficult. Um, What I want to do today though is sort of try to tie up as many loose ends as I possibly can, uh, mainly to be able to pass to or give us the opportunity to pass to our next section, um, which is going to be focusing on uh, anthropology, uh, focusing on the dignity of the human person. But I'm going to try my best here to present what should be essential to all Catholic sexual ethics appropriate to the landscape that we face. Again, as I said, I can give answers. I'm not going to get a lot today, but we're going to hopefully flesh things out over the course of the semester. Today, though, just basically want to wrap things up and move forward by presenting very concrete, I think there may be five or six points that are going to be essential, they're going to tie everything up. The first one is this. When we're we're sort of like establishing the basis of a Catholic sexual ethics of moving forward of what we're going to look at, is the importance of the sacramental worldview. Particularly uh, as opposed to that nihilistic worldview. We look at the secular worldview. Uh, Carl Truman does a very good job at that. And What our our response is, is going to be, as we talked about those concentric circles, overarching the Catholic worldview. And so if we can see this is how we ought to view the world, viewing it from the lens of revelation, then it changes our anthropology, it changes our understanding of sex and sexuality. And we talked a fair bit about it last year, but what is the sacramental worldview or this Catholic worldview? It's one that is open and metaphysical and transcendent. Where in creation, all of creation reveals God. God reveals himself through creation and his love. That the sacred, the holy is present in and through creation. That creation is infused with a deeper meaning, a deeper purpose, a deeper telos. It does not mean that we worship creation. We don't worship the sun and the moon like the primitives did. But we see God and his love and gift presented through that. And we can interpret a deeper meaning, symbolism, call it what you want. We live in a a porous, not buffered existence. It's not just material for us to be able to manipulate and control. The Ratzinger article, which I moved to the recommended area, uh, that talks about this sacramental worldview, describes it well. He says, quote, If historical events, words of scriptures, and cultic realities can be called sacraments, Then this means that the early Christian concept of sacrament included an interpretation of the world, of man, and of God that is convinced of the fact that things are not just things. I love that. The things that things are not just things and material for our labor. Rather, they are at the same time signs pointing beyond themselves of that divine love towards which they become transparent for someone who has sight, unquote. So yeah, we, we, we need to have dominion over creation, but these things, oil, water, meals, the sun, whatever, have a deeper transcendent meaning that can point to God and his love. So yeah, it's based on symbolism, pointing beyond this this image that points beyond to something deeper, uh, but it's more than that. It's more than just the symbolic world, as important as that is. It's the sacred world. It's not just, so this is a symbol. You could be a total pagan and believe in symbols, but it's the world that is enchanted. It's the world of Gerald Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis. I'm not saying that there are little fairies actually flying around, but There's a sacredness to creation. There's a sacredness to body. There's a sacredness to the world that we could see. And that's why I think symbol and sacred sort of come together in that traditional meaning of sacrament. You probably have looked at this in your sacramental class with Father Deo. Uh, We're going to look at it more when we look at marriage as a sacrament. Uh, But John Paul II gives that patristic definition of sacrament as what? Very simple. What is a sacrament in the deeper patristic definition? A visible sign of an invisible reality. I think it's proper to say sacrament or sacramental, a visible sign of a sacred invisible reality. And so, the theology of the body, at the very beginning, when John Paul II looks at in the beginning, he talks about the mystery of creation. Now, we're going to get this into later what he means between mystery and sacrament and how those words are similar, but a little bit different. But basically, that we can look at creation and realize that we didn't deserve any of this. That it, But it's there and it had to come from somewhere. There was a creator who brought it all into existence, including ourselves. And so we ask ourselves, what is the reason for creation? It reveals the creator But it also reveals his love, that all creation is a gift because we did not deserve it. That's the mystery of creation, revealing God's love, revealing his gift. And so he uses, and we're going to come back to this a lot, the hermeneutics of the gift, interpreting creation, interpreting the body through this perspective of gift, the total gift of self, God's gift of self, Christ's gift of self, our gift of self. So what is the response? It's one of gratitude, but as we'll see, it's also got to be one of wonder. Wow, this is just completely and totally amazing how all of this sort of comes together and how God reveals himself to us in his creation. And and so I I think we can say that, that the sacramental worldview which, if you read the article that I connected to this, you'll understand the difference between that and the secular worldview. It's connected to what we talked about last semester, the moral imagination. that we can use symbol and story and narrative to communicate deep moral truths. that these These stories matter. I sort of discussed it last semester, that stories rather than dogma are often much more convincing. Uh, or, or a novel can teach us a lot, or a movie can teach us a lot more about a moral truth than, let's say, simply reading about it in our textbook. And so we need to see these things as possible to communicate truth. And it establishes what we used to talk about in seminary, maybe we talked about it last year, this dichotomy between homo faber, the man who makes and constructs, versus homo pontifex. Pontifex building the bridge builder between the created world and the transcendent. So it's the person, it's Homo Pontifex, the one who's able to see symbolism, able to see truth, able to see the sacred that can build that bridge. Otherwise, you're just destined to living in a world of raw material. I will also say, and I think this is something that I came up with last year maybe was inspired if you're going to look at the the symbols or like what type of person besides homo faber versus homo pontifex how do you see this typified is the difference between the cynic and the child the cynic is the one who's skeptical about everything who, who doubts you know god's goodness doubts his existence (laughs) Has that nihilistic worldview versus the child who looks at the world with wonder and sees God and and all sorts of things. The cynic is also the critic who is sort of jaded and is always tearing things down versus the child who's building up, who's constructing stories, who's constructing scenarios where he can play and and see how God works. It's despairing outlook versus the hopeful outlook. The childlike wonder at the mystery of creation, and the childlike trust, as we talked about last semester, in the Father, and Christ, and his plan for salvation. And so we really do have to become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot of different meanings of that. Yeah, you got to be small. Yes, you have to be innocent. But there has to be a radical trust and receptivity but most importantly, you have to have that sense of wonder to be able to see the kingdom of heaven around you, to live in that joy. If we have time, there's a great episode of Bluey from the third season that typifies this. If we don't get to watch it today, it's called Born Yesterday. And, and I was watching this and said, man, if I have time for this class, we'll show it. If we don't, maybe we'll watch it later. But it's got to be here, this is the second point, and this is intimately connected to the first one. It's got to be more than just the sacramental worldview. You could be a pagan and and worship trees and stuff and have a sacramental or quasi-sacramental worldview. That's the funny thing. Pagans and witches and all these people are much more similar to us than the true rationalists and secularists. Because at least they believe that there is some transcendent reality out there. Now so you like this, but they are. No, I, was, I was like, wow, that's that's It's true. It's true. Not that we need to be going to join covens or anything like that, but we have the next level. And what is the next level? Where we not only view the sacrament of creation, but we see it through the mystery of redemption and Jesus. The Son of God become man is the center and apex of creation. All things are seen in and through him. Because the incarnation is the true sacrament. The logos becomes flesh in order to do what? To reveal the Father. And thus bring to, to our life and to the world a new level to the meaning of creation. And so he came to redeem fallen creation and restore all things to himself. It's Colossians 1.20. We know that passage. Um, And we set up what John Paul II calls the sacrament or the mystery of redemption. Now to be able to look at the world uh, through this lens of Christ's redeeming act. But what's at the center of Christ's redeeming act? The cross. Yes, and there are different analogies used to describe his death on the cross for us. But taking up something that is in the Old Testament, taking up something in the prophets, there is an analogy that is at the heart of the mystery of redemption. And what analogy is that? The spousal analogy analogy of man and woman. So this is going to be so important, y'all. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, the prophets, using the spousal analogy to describe God's relationship to Israel. Christ takes it up. Today, John the Baptist, hey, look, he is the Lamb of God. I can't take off the sandals of his shoes. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. There is that spousal analogy that runs through it finding its apex ultimately in Revelation and the marriage of the Lamb and the Bride. But we're going to get to it a lot, Ephesians chapter 5, the great mystery, the great sacrament of the love Christ has for his church. And so we're seeing creation, seeing the mystery of redemption through the spousal lens. So Christ also, of course, we know, gives us the sacraments to communicate his grace, to insert us into the life of that redemptive act, and particularly the Eucharist, which John Paul II says sort of is intimately connected and flows from the gift of marriage. And so this mystery of creation, this mystery of redemption, is the story of our salvation. It's a narrative. It's a story. And it helps to to uh, shape the sacramental worldview. And it helps to shape our moral imagination. And is the grounding, and this is where it's, it's becoming important, for our anthropology and for our morality. For our morality. And so this is the overarching conscious circle influencing anthropology, influencing the central one there. Anthropology. Got him at 22. Y'all know this one. Christ comes to reveal man to himself. Y'all know this, don't y'all? Have y'all studied that? The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. For Adam, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling known. And so we, we know who we are. We know what our body is, the dignity we have as persons, and then it also transforms morality. What What was the first stuff we talked about last year? For Christians and Catholics, morality is not primarily about following laws and rules, but following Jesus, the person of Jesus. Person of Jesus. And so there is going to be that interior transformation. But for our purposes here, rather than just like the transformation of anthropology and ethics, there's the transformation of sexual ethics, where sex is not just something biological that we do just to reproduce. Or in the secular worldview, it's not just there for recreation. Because of the sacramental nature of creation and because of the incarnation, the spousal analogy, Sex and the body and sexual difference and fertility is infused with meaning. In the secular secular worldview, sex becomes disenchanted. So there's no sense of the sacred. And we've talked a little bit about it, the influence of technology and all of this, making where now, hey, I have power over sex and sexuality. There's no sacredness to it the problem of the technocratic age. And that's the importance of that Christopher Derrick article. How many of you read that? The one, the desacralization of Venus. I remember when I was presented with that article, we were taking a Pauline class, and there was a professor who would just ramble on nonsensically as an Irish guy. And I remember just hated the class. And one of my pals said, imagine you're in a pub drinking a beer just listening to him tell stories. And that made it much easier. The problem was I couldn't actually have a beer because it was 9 o'clock in the morning. But but he would mention these articles. And I remember looking up this one. Christopher Derrick is a disciple of C.S. Lewis. And this was written in 81. Did you all see what magazine it came from? America. Well, different. World's changed. But basically saying that every single creator Culture. Every single culture, besides ours, which is this technocratic age, has seen sex and fertility connected to divinity, even to the point of creating gods and goddesses. Venus, the god of love, the different goddesses of fertility. a little gig whatever you call it. There's little, these little, little icons, these little fertility gods and goddesses. And even to the point, well what was in the Old Testament whenever God was telling people to tear down sacred poles, what were the sacred poles? Well, the there were big lingams. There were big penises. That's what they were. And you'd pour stuff over it and you'd worship the fertility God and then you'd go sleep with the temple prostitutes. And the temple, doing that, they didn't have a vocation crisis back then with that, but... <laughs> It was the the, the heavens and the, the, the male god and the earth receiving it. The earth was the yoni. That was like the big dish, the dish that you dip the lingam into. And it symbolized all of this stuff. And, of course, Yahweh comes and says, ah, this is stupid. We're not doing this. Go destroy those sacred poles. Go kill everybody. But why? Because setting up for Christ who comes to end up on the cross giving himself for the church, and thus taking uh, human sexuality and lifting it to a, a a different level. But it was not just sex, it was fertility, the power to bring forth life. And so what's happened is he talks about the desacralization of Venus. Now, we don't have any sense of that. Sex is just for pleasure. And his argument is, and I think it's a powerful one, if indeed sex is sacred and fertility is sacred and we are handling it and we're either a not deputed to do so you're not going't have the authority to do so or you're not in the right mental or spiritual state that God or goddess of fertility flips on you and it becomes the goddess of destruction and there's hell to pay and but in, in the in the Judeo-Christian perspective, remember the the Ark of the Covenant and they're walking with it and it starts tipping and those two dudes say, we're going to prop it up, boom, dead. Struck dead. Why? Because they were not deputed to touch the Holy of the Holies. What is the best contemporary cultural example of this? I'd show it to you, but I'd be wasting time, so I might post it. It's when Belloc and the Germans have kidnapped Indy and Marion. And they're going to go. These evil Nazis and this atheistic French pervert. Um, everybody's a pervert today in, in class. Are just going to open up the ark, and they're going to have this little Jewish ceremony. And what does Indy tell Marion? This is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Don't look. Close your eyes. And then, of course, I remember watching this in the theaters as a kid, and think it was so awesome. Looks like they are angels coming out. It's beautiful. And the angels turn to demons, and then everybody's face melts and their head explodes. This is what happens. It's what happens. And, and, and again, could there be some of the destruction that we're seeing sort of surrounded around the sexual realm because there is a deeper spiritual truth here that that we are handling things that are sacred and doing so in a profane manner. Uh, I went and reposted it yesterday the penultimate uh, audience from the theology of the body, not the one where he summarizes what he was doing, but the other one, if you go look at it, what does he end on? He ends on reverence, particularly for the unitive and procreative aspects of the marital act. And what do we have reverence for? We have reverence for that which is sacred. We don't worship it, but in the christian vision we do see the body sex and fertility something sacred and for me this is the key not just telling people rules but saying this is something sacred that you should handle with care it's a beautiful thing it communicates and is connected to a much deeper reality much deeper reality so really that's where the connection of the Eucharist is, the liturgy, prayer, and I've seen it. The more an individual begins to be perceptive of the sacred and pray and particularly connection with the Eucharist, their sexual ethics often will change, often will change because they see it as something reverent. When I have couples come up to me and if they're not going to mass on Sundays or if they' just do because they have to, guess what? They, they, they're doing some other stuff, nine times out of ten. But if they're, try, they're going to Mass on Sundays, chances are they are trying not to do that other thing. And particularly for couples who like pray a holy hour together once a week and who go to daily Mass, uh, it's a much different way they act things out. So we'll talk more about this later. So here's the important takeaway, at least before we get to the second part. Without understanding the Catholic worldview— and the centrality of Jesus in the Christian narrative, sexual ethics and anthropo- anthropology will not make sense. And we saw that last semester. If you're not following Jesus, it's just going to be a bunch of rules. And sexual ethics can't be that, it can't be just a bunch of rules. It flows from a worldview, it flows from an anthropology. And if you read that, that section, you know, Converting Our Vision, it talks about that. If you don't have it, if you're not converted, none of this is going to make sense. You have to have that overarching vision. You've got to know the person of Jesus. And so the reality is this hostile culture around us, I'm convinced that we're probably not going to convince them through reason. We may just have to say, we're going to agree to disagree. You live like that, I'm going to live like this. And that's the way the early Christians did it. And it's their way of life, their charity, their holiness that gives a deeper witness. Make sense? So that's the the overarching worldview, and we're going to get to some some more specific things. But here is, since the, the first lesson of the class, this is the thing that came to me, and I've alluded to it, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, that we talked about how The discussion of morality, specifically sexual morality, has moved from behavior to identity. Who I am. I am LGBT. I I am uh, genderqueer. Whatever it is, this is who I am. This is not the behavior I engage in. And that, that identity is based on experience. It could be the subjective experience of my body. It could be the experience of sexual attraction, whatever it is. And and I think Josh was the one who brought it up. Like, how do you understand identity? And how is it connected? And I realized this, that you can't make the jump necessarily directly from experience to identity. I'm having an experience. And particularly if we're talking about young people whose hormones are going all over the place and who may be dealing with different interior things or their own brokenness, need a framework to understand their experience. They need a hermeneutic to understand what they're going through, to give it meaning, to be able to sort it out. And again, probably it's not the technically proper use of this term, but you need a matrix. You need this worldview to be able to help you understand what you are experiencing. And so whether people realize it or not, that which has its roots in gender theory becomes this hermeneutic, the gender ideology today. So here's somebody confused. I mean, goodness gracious, What 14, 15-year-old kids not confused about all their feelings? Or even an adult who's experiencing these things, maybe from a biological perspective. Well, I don't want I don't to really make sense of this. Enter this as the hermeneutic. It connects you and forms your identity. Now, again, we could probably make a phenomenology of this. But yeah, they, they, they get it through social media. They get it through the social imaginary. And so if we're going to make headway in this, and if my estimation is correct, we can offer and need to offer a critique of this, but we've got to have something to replace it. Are we going to present that framework, the sacramental worldview, the incarnational worldview, to be able to help people understand their experience? Yes, you're experiencing this, but we're all fallen. And with grace and redemption, we can either bear that as a cross or have it transformed. And to know that your fundamental identity is not based on your own internal sexual concept of self, as important as it may or may not be, it's got to be Christ. The person of Christ who reveals the Father to us, helping to form our identity. And from that, anthropology, and the behavior that flows from it. So we, it's not just I, I, I think for our task is not just to say and we need to sometimes this is right this is wrong no this is the framework for understanding it and that's what I think John Paul II tried to do in theology of the body he didn't come out guns blare and saying you can't contracept because of A B C D and E he said I'm going to spend about four years telling you setting it up until the very end I tell you why you can't do it you don't necessarily need to do that. (laughs) But the ethic is going to flow from it. And that's what I intend to hopefully do, or we intend, through the course of the semester. To take the sacramental worldview, to take the great mystery, to look at anthropology, which is our next little section. Sex and sexual ethics is the following section. States of life. And then finally, we're going to look at the end of, of the action. Sort of setting up the same structure that Theology of the body has. But to be able, if we can have this and we can, oh, this is a great idea, Father. I love this. Well, how are we gonna how are we gonna convey it to people? It's gotta be more than just an intellectual argument. And I think it has to be even more than just a narrative, explaining to people. Hey, go go read the Chronicles of Narnia, and then you'll just love Jesus. Maybe. Possibly. But as I said. What works today in communicating is truths but spoken to the heart, to people on a more personal level. And to be able to speak to their experience and to a degree from our experience. Not not that just our experience is all that matters. It's our experience subjected to Christ. And to help them to see their experience, to communicate in a way that is most effective. Particularly for people who are confused and broken and filled with shame and self-destructive behavior. And let me tell you, you're going to see it. Someone comes into my confession to me and starts going down a list of these pretty significant sexual sins. It's not just, I'm looking at porn and masturbating, but like... I've hooked up with three or four different guys, or I'm doing these different things. First question I'm going to ask is, are your parents divorced? Are you the victim of sexual abuse? There's usually some much deeper pain there. And me simply saying, hey, quit fornicating. is not going to work. As I quoted last year, and I'll quote again this year, you're not going to reason someone out of a position they did not reason themselves into the first place. I know we loved that everybody just sort of used their reason and understood, oh, yes, this is not where my genitals belong. Forget it. That's not what they're acting out of most of the time. So we've got to be able to never abandon the truth but to be able to present it in a way that transforms minds and hearts. So this is where, yes? I was just going to ask you, when you say you have to go back and ask um, some history of a person, whether it was parental status or they been mm-hmm. abused, can it be just several generations of, of family not having anything to do with God? Oh, or definitely it can. But usually, in my experience, and you've got to be delicate you do this, if it's some really significant bad behavior, and you just got kind of to pick it up, there's usually some deeper brokenness there. It may be started that way, but let me tell you all, we're going to have a class on it. There is more sexual abuse and trauma than you could possibly imagine out there. You can't even imagine how bad it is. And so we don't automatically assume that's what it is. But you, chances are you have a person, if they weren't broken before, they've done some hooking up, they're broken now. Yes. I'm about ready to tell you. Look at that. How do we do it? And granted, I can give basic principles, but prudence is going to help you decide in individual situations how to do it. First, I really honestly believe, and again, I I, I believe the truth. I mean, I, I talk about theology. Personal testimonies are effective. Stories and narratives speak to people. Tell me, again, I'm not going to ask y'all, because y'all are a bunch of seminarians, but let's say that you have a a parish or some sort of a convention for men or for young people or for women or for college students, whatever it is, and you say, there are two talks you could choose from. One is going to give a talk about the um, ethical principles that anchor theology of the body, maybe they'll call it really cool, or another person is going to give their personal testimony of how they were abused sexually or they acted out, they encountered Christ and are now living a holy life. Which one is going to have to be in the auditorium and which one is going to have to be in the classroom? You know the answer to this. It's going to be the one who takes the truth but conveys it not only in a story form but in... The form of a personal narrative. All right. I'll be honest. I could give a crap less about most Hollywood stars, but have y'all been seeing all over Facebook Shia LaBeouf's story? People are freaking out over it. Like, what? Now, granted, I didn't think this guy is a second-rate actor. He played a terrible young Indiana Jones. Terrible. But maybe... <laughs> But it speaks to people. I've been mean, like, Father, I I said, three people tell me they cried when listening to his testimony. So maybe I'm going to. But it's experience speaking to experience. It touches the heart in a deeper way. And it doesn't mean it's just emotions. It's a deeper truth put in a way that sells. Stories sell. Images sell. Pictures sell. And part of it, we're here to, to we're salespeople, y'all. You're not you're not hucksters. You're not used car salesmen, but you're trying to let people accept Jesus. Number two, not just stories, but sanctity. Talked about it last year. Ratzinger said it. It's not going to be truth that convinces people but beauty and holiness. Hey, instead of you just saying you should live lives of chastity, live it out. And people being loved in a chaste way, as I said, will have a conversion. Maybe not. Maybe their shame will take over and they'll push away. But it's the sanctity that comes out in chaste love. It comes out in joy. It tends to draw people to Christ. So it's the story of our lives that are really going to impact people. And as a priest or as a religious sister, loving People in a chaste way gradually breaks down the walls. Number three, and this I think really is the address to what Hugh said, it's got to be personal encounter and accompaniment. It just has to be. You, You can preach all you want from the pulpit. Nobody will remember your homilies. You probably won't remember your homilies. But that personal encounter with the broken sinner or the person who comes to your office where you show them mercy and you guide them to a deeper truth and you're willing to see them again and you're not going to judge them, that is what is going to change hearts. Because as we said last year, people want to be seen, known, and loved. So be the person who does that. Most people act unchastely, as I said earlier, because they've never been loved in a chaste way. And if we can, even our imperfections and our struggles with sin and lust love people chastely, then we are opening up the space for Christ to love them through us and to touch them through us. But it takes an experience. You can know in your head, I know I am a son of the Father. I know that I'm loved. But once you experience it and you mediate that experience of Christ, then they encounter the person through you. Particularly as a priest, you are going to act in the person of Christ. He will act in them through you. And granted, look, hey, discipleship phase, it's all great. You need to learn to have friendship with Jesus. But in the configuration stage, you are supposed to be preparing to be in the person of Christ, the shepherd, who will act in and through you. How are you going to encounter Christ most on a personal daily basis besides the Eucharist, the mass? You're going to know that he's working through you. And and, and you're as what is it? One of these. I called it le sacrement du sacrament. Christ is the sacrament of the Father, and you are the sacrament of Christ, which means what? You are the sacrament of the sacrament. Oh, mind blown. And so is the personal encounter, but not just like, hey, personal encounter. It's like it's like these missions. I'm coming to preach a mission. Drop truth bomb. I'm out of here. No. <laughs> I'm coming to live with you. For the course of the next six months and establish relationships then things may change it's the road to emmaus i think that becomes the real paradigm and pope francis he talks about it at the world youth day discussion to the bishops i know we have a safe environment we've got to be careful i understand that but it's going to be a long journey but you got to let people i'm not giving up hope i'm not giving up hope on you we're going somewhere but people need that unconditional hope that Father Jacques Philippe talks about. We're going to get through this, even though it may be a long, long journey. Um, people may to comment be clean, but you keep, keep walking. Yeah. What was the first of the three? Uh, personal the first that said personal testimonies are effective. Second is personal sanctity. Third is personal encounter and accompaniment. Because what does this all do? What does these things do? It it touches people's desire and need to be seen and loved. But it also begins to speak to a deeper need we all have to belong. And we're going to see this on Wednesday. We as humans created in the image and likeness of God are created for what? Huh? Communion. Relationship, encounter. That's what person it's ultimately about. In the Trinity, persons are defined by what? Relations. 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 And so uh, we are trying to establish, and I think John Paul II is an adequate anthropology is an anthropology of communion of communion. And so, people want to be seen, known, and loved because they're persons, they're encountered. You give them the gift of self, and from that becomes the, the belonging. They become part of a family. They become part of a tribe. They become part of the church. So this is the thing. You see all these broken people who we can point the finger at and say, oh, they're getting involved in this radical LGBT ideology. Well, guess what? Those people... Are giving them purpose and meaning and making them feel like they belong to a group. What are we doing? What are we doing? I'm not saying that we need to fly weirdly colored flags in front of the church. I'm not saying that at all. What can we offer? Not only can we offer the sacramental worldview, but if people want to belong, how can we form their identity and help them belong? You know, it's... It's, it's what we talked about last semester, morality in communion, the ecclesial and friendship dimension. Hey, you know what? It really stinks. This is a real struggle. and I know you're experiencing a lot of shame, but hey, we're going to help try to create a community where you don't need to be ashamed, where you can get the help that you need, where even in your struggle, if you fall, there are going to be people to pick you up and keep walking with you. This, and that's why this is not based out of ideology. I think a lot of the times these types of outreaches today to very broken people or different sexual identity subsets is often driven by a secret ideology. No, this is the ideology of communion, of the dignity of the human person, and the sacredness of sex in the body. What does that look like? I don't know. How do you communicate in your parish? But all this is necessary because it helps us to form our identity. I'm going back to that. Identity politics, call it what you want. Our core identity is Christians, if you are a baptized Christian, it is not with some social group or with some political party or with some quasi-Marxist organization. Are or to your sexual proclivity. Or to your sexual identity. Whatever it might be today. But as beloved sons and daughters in whom the Father delights. And when people come to experience that, whether it be directly through prayer or part of a church or through you, they're transformed. And morality is not just about rules. It becomes the philly morality. I, I know who I am. I know my dignity. I know I'm loved. Therefore, I'll act out of it. And so because, indeed, sexuality is an integral part of who we are. I mean, you're male or female, the core of your, your genes. There's an ontological dimension to it, too. We're going to act out of it. And so when people know who they are, and sometimes it happens quick, sometimes it doesn't, things change. If you think that you're trash and that because this person abused you, you're no good, then you're going to act in accord with that. But if you know the dignity and and you hold your body in reverence, as St. Paul talks about, chances are you're not going to. And I can tell you a lot of stories uh, of people, particularly young people uh, I've worked with. You know, uh, let's say a young woman who, before she got to college, in a broken family, but it wasn't the most perfect, and got involved in the party lifestyle, even in the first years of college, and all the things that usually entails. Wanted to believe, but kind of really struggled going back and forth with that belief. Wanting to practice but falling away. And it wasn't, and this is one story I'm thinking of that becomes somewhat of a composite because it happened a lot, encounters someone else, particularly another student who knows who she is and is really good at loving people and sees that other girl who's living in her shame but there's no judgment. And things begin to change. Not overnight, they begin to change because she knows who she is. She studied theology of the body. She went to Catholic schools. She knows what it is, but it's that encounter that over time of her journeying and loving her changes her. She gives up the party lifestyle. She starts coming to mass. She becomes the sweetest person you could possibly imagine. She meets this really great guy. They get married. They want to have this wonderful family. And now she's trying to get a degree in theology to influence others. So you need your theology, but it needs to go with experience. And finally, you know, I want to say, as we talked about last week, there is a spiritual dimension to this. There is a spiritual dimension to this. As much as we can put psychology and ethics, there's a spiritual battle. And, and I think mm-hmm. I talked a little bit about this um, before, that... We are talking about symbolism, symbolic, the sacramental creation, symbolane. Did we talk about this last year? Or y'all heard this? Symbolane. The English word ball comes from balane in Greek. Symbolane means to throw together. I think which is symbolic is thrown together. What is the antonym of symbolic? Diaboling, to throw it across, to throw apart. So the diabolical wants to destroy the sacramental, the symbolic, wants to cause confusion, wants to distort the image. And so where God is instilled, we believe, into creation a perpetual image of himself. That is, the human person created the image and likeness of God, and as we'll see, particularly the human couple and the family, in their communion. So if you break up the family through this diabolical action, what what are you doing? You're destroying the Imago Dei. So there's not going to be that image of God there, or it's going to be distorted or perverted. This is what he wants. Uh, and I, I, It's there. It's the tack on the family. I think it's also an attack on the woman in a particular way, her fertility, her, 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 the Marian symbol. So we have to recognize that. And besides praying the rosary and, and really encouraging that sacramental perspective of communion, we, we've got to do our best to, to really try to restore a sense of the sacred. Did y'all, if y'all read the Philip Reeve thing that was talked about and that reading from Truman, Philip Reeve comes up with the concept of death works, where he's not saying it from uh, like a spiritual perspective, but basically a death work, he calls it, this is that guy who wrote The Triumph of the Therapeutic, an all-out assault upon something vital to the established culture. Every death works represents the admiring final assault on the objects of its admiration. The sacred orders of which their acts are some expression in the repressive mode. What does that mean? It means that things that are sacred, the family, sexuality, whatever it is, is going to be attacked. And as they puts it, the sacramental will become the excremental. Destroy the symbolism. Destroy its meaning. Pornography is, old, is a great death work. The sacredness of sex and marriage, we're going to push pornography. Yes, it's from a, they're, they're human agents, but ultimately, what does sex become? It, it's removed from its sacred sense, which is veiled and covered. And so it becomes something diabolic. What's the ultimate death work? Abortion. Abortion. Sacredness of life. Hey, Abortion is a great thing. Death work. Diabolic. We're not going to attribute everything to the devil, but we've got to realize that that we have to be men who are working for symbolism to throw together, which is communion. Not only in our ideas, and our presentation, but also in our relationships. The more we try to tear things down, the worse it becomes. And so we... Appeal to the individual's desire for the transcendent. And we appeal to his desire for communion. Again, I know that this is a lot and we're kind of all over the place. But this sets up where I want to go and what we're trying to do. And I think you will see, hopefully, me take a lot of these themes and, and the readings and what we discussed, tie them together. So, this is the end of the first section, we're going to have a 20 question quiz, we'll be up online on Thursday, do it online, you should be able to finish pretty quickly, there'll be no essays, maybe some short answers, but no essays, and then we're going to move to the next section, the the, the next concentric circle, which is going to be that concentric circle of anthropology and trying to establish an anthropology of communion, which is what John Paul II, I think, ultimately tried to do. The adequate anthropology is seeing man and woman in communion, meant for gift, meant for communion. And for that, we're going to get to that middle middle circle of sex, chastity, and lust. So really, we're going to technically follow the outline of theology of the body and draw different parts from it, where he begins at the beginning with who we're created to be, and then sort of gets into the fall, and then moves to the sacrament. Um, But you'll see it as we process. So any questions or comments? Does this make sense? Trying to tie all the threads together. So it's about the worldview, it's about our anthropology, uh, and communicating it by living it out. People will see it. And if they experience it, it changes the heart and opens the mind to not only believing things, but living it out. And I usually find that comes... Some people were deeply wounded, and they're going to struggle with certain sins all their life. Uh, But at least there's an effort to overcome and to be able to move forward, and an openness to grace. So you may not shatter their false identities right away, but gradually, through erosion, uh, the walls begin to come down, and they can see themselves as they truly are, and then have that reverence for the body, reverence for the act, and then begin living out of that. So, let's close. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be, world without end. Amen.